Hey everyone, welcome in to Patterns Tell Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about the Soul Foundation Symposium, the Smithsonian, and Yamashita's Gold. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Garrett. What's up, man? What's up, dude? How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? Pretty good. I'm excited to get going on this one. The Soul Foundation thing, that's been spinning around for a while. There's been all sorts of rumors as to like people making surprise appearances and stuff. And uh, I want to know what's going on. Do you know anyone that's there? Uh, Yeah, there's a few people I know that are there. Um, I think it's kind of not really locked down, but there's a limit on what people can say. And they're not streaming the whole thing because they want to be able to edit it. And the reason for that is they want people to be able to speak freely without, you know, having their words plastered all over Twitter, like fucking two seconds after they say it, Uh, which makes sense to me because, you know, with something as sensitive as this, you want to be able to speak freely. And, you know, there's a lot of stigma still attached to this stuff and people's words get easily, especially by like fucking Stephen Greenstreet and shit. They'll just take it and twist your words and you know, make it sound like you're you're crazy. And then, you know, it would balloon into some ridiculous shit that would, you know, kind of undercut the credibility of this whole thing. So it makes sense to me that they would want to keep it kind of quiet-ish, at least initially, uh, until they can, you know, put out kind of a final cut, I guess, uh, should be out in about a week or so. The Soul Foundation, uh, this is their first symposium. They were announced uh, a few months ago. Their website is uh, Soul Found- thesoulfoundation.org. They have, um, you know, their kind of mission statement and, and their policy and what they're all about up there. I'll just read some of it real quick. Um, again, this was founded by Gary Nolan, who probably most people listening to this know by now. He's a Stanford uh, microbiologist and um, path, pathologist <laughs> or geneticist. And, uh, you know, he's been looking into this UAP subject for a long time now. His co-founder is Peter Scafish, I believe is how you pronounce his name who is an anthropologist, and um, I think he's been working with Gary for a little bit. So they know each other well, and they, you know, with the seriousness the subject is being taken with these days, uh, they decided to start a foundation and kind of bridge the gap between government and academia. Uh, So they say, um, whatever they might be, the cultural significance that UAP hold for human beings have long made them symbols worthy of academic inquiry. With the interest that the legislative branches of the United States and now Canada are taking in UAP have revealed that there is serious hard data on the phenomena that demands rigorous scientific analysis and considered philosophical reflection. The Soul Foundation is accordingly developing an ambitious 2024 to 2025 research agenda that cuts across the natural sciences, the social sciences and humanities and engineering to explore UAP and their implications. We are currently assembling teams of notable academics to conduct research into the implications that UAP hold for our understanding of aspects of nature like physics and matter, as well as human institutions such as law, politics, and religion. Where the science of UAP is concerned, we will support studies of potential material components of UAP, the possible physics and engineering of their propulsion and energy technologies, and the biological effects of human exposure to them. We are also working to develop an initial UAP policy framework for the European Union. So this is uh, definitely an international effort. I think that's really important to get this out of the control of of the United States and make it less US-centric because, uh, yeah, this is a worldwide phenomenon and uh, everyone should be involved in looking into it. And I think they have uh, some people involved already in the in the Seoul Foundation but yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's really important to get the international science community involved. 
because yeah, this is a global phenomenon. Yeah, I think it's really cool that they're doing this. Dude, can I ask you something about Gary Nolan? Yeah. Doesn't he have like a fucking powerful electron microscope? The most powerful ever, or not ever, but like it's up there being just pretty disgustingly cool. Yeah, it's for his microbiology lab. I think it can view things on an atomic level that like, I believe it's called a uh, mass spectrometer. Yeah, for his cancer research, he uses that. And it can be applied to uh, anomalous materials that I think they used it for um, the Council Bluffs paper that he did with Jacques Vallée. I think they used um, a yeah, mass spectrometer from his lab in, at Stanford to analyze that material. I think they, they said in that specific case that like something molten fell off the craft. That's where they got the materials they analyzed in, in his lab there. That's so sick. Okay, keep going though. Sorry. It's still going on. Today's Saturday. The first day was yesterday. Uh, someone put up a summary on Reddit. People kind of leaking out stuff. So judging from what's going on on Twitter, this sounds pretty accurate. Uh, so Gary Nolan did the intro with Peter Scafish. He went into a presentation about what we were just talking about, the materials that uh, he and Jacques Vallée have access to. Gary also brought up something pretty interesting called the Stardust Repository. And it's to um, standardize testing of anomalous materials like within a kind of network or a federation of labs, but under a public umbrella and openly test uh, yeah, anomalous material. It's pretty cool. Avi Loeb talked about his spherules. I don't really want to get into that because there's, there's a little controversy over that right now. And um, yeah, I don't know. That's don't the, know. the ocean shit, right? He was scouring yeah. the ocean trying to find these little spheres. Yeah, and then like a paper came out that Apparently debunked it, and now he's refuting it. And I don't know where that stands right now, so I, I don't really want to you know, nice. any, <laughs> any judgment on that uh, com- based on the little information we have and, and just people's uh, kind of biases. So yeah, Kevin Newth made a really good presentation, apparently, about polarizing filters when photographing or filming UAP. Now, Jacques Vallée's speech was very interesting. That usually is how it is. He, his his speeches are really, really good, and he, he delivers them in such a calm, calm manner when he's talking about some of the craziest shit in the world. The person who wrote this summary got to ask a question during, during Jacques Vallée's, I guess he, they do a Q&A after they make their speech or you know, do their talk. He asks uh, Vallée about something that was in his Forbidden Science 5. His for, Forbidden Science series is basically uh, journals that he takes over usually like a decade, and then he consolidates them and puts them into a comprehensive uh, book, basically. Uh, there's definitely a lot of fascinating stuff he puts in there. There's uh, little nuggets that you wouldn't be able to find really anywhere else um, based on the people he's in contact with and uh, the connections he has. Some of the stuff he puts in there is really surprising, especially uh, this part. So the person who made this uh, summary up on Reddit that we're kind of reading from, <laughs> his name is uh, Poop Dig. Um, I've, I've kind of recognized him for a while now he's been he's been on our ufos uh yeah it's cool that he got there and asked this question about what quote unquote blue border is it did not sound familiar to me even though i had read ballet's forbidden science five you know there's kind of a lot of filler in there i probably kind of zone out every once in a while but dude, that uh, book is gigantic i know it's huge I, I have it on my shelf and i'm looking <laughs> at it dude it is so big most people yeah. have never even read a chapter book like this book is <laughs> that's all i keep saying when i read these <laughs> forbidden science books is like i expected like a little modest journal you yeah. know jacques valet 
Oh my god! And his bullshit detector is so good. I know. Like, there's so many little sideshows that he writes about that people that like. There's so many personalities that talk about saucers, and he writes about them so honestly, <laughs> and it's awesome. Like, you really got to be into the weeds to understand a lot of the stuff he's talking about. These books are for like straight up UFO junkies, like. Uh... I, for sure I, I, I can't imagine like my fucking sister reading that shit like oh man it's just like some old guys fucking journals but uh for us it's like some of the most exciting stuff we've ever read it's kind of funny but yeah he he was asked a question about blue border yeah i hadn't really looked into it or really like noticed it because I, I guess i skimmed over that part but i went back and looked into it after i had read that just to get an idea and uh it's actually kind of uh, a little scary. I'm just going to read the little section it's from, and we can kind of go over it. Over at NIDS, discussion has been raging about the Medea Committee, a group of experts, including my friend Peter Banks, with access to surveillance satellite data. Physicist Eric Davis would like to join on behalf of NIDS, an idea that John Alexander finds unrealistic, given the level of secrecy. Recalling the structure of special access programs like our remote viewing work at SRI, Hal Pudoff reminded us that special access programs were not really above top secret. They're just compartmentalized in a special way. In that vein, John Alexander spoke mysteriously about a form of secret access called Blue Border, which he claims, quote, can get people killed. So that's pretty scary. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's, it's nuts that he puts these kind of little, little uh, nuggets in here that kind of really make you think. So it's no joke. Yeah, man. What do you, what do you think about? the term blue border and what it could possibly mean. Dude, I, I honestly don't feel qualified to speculate. The thing that gets me about the meeting, like the soul meeting is like when I saw that list of names that were by hour by hour, who was speaking, almost every one of them had one or multiple PhDs yeah. and was like, I can't stress enough how impressive these individuals are. Like we still have to examine what they say and like, see like a phd doesn't necessarily mean that like you know what i mean like that's not right. that does not mean everything there's plenty of phds who are bozos i know that for sure but like these guys in my opinion are not bozos like they're respected very interesting academics i like that they're doing their due diligence to make sure that this doesn't turn into some sort of like sideshow event you know what i mean like not taken seriously or anything. And uh, I like that they're kind of being quiet about it. I just don't, as far as the, uh, what is it called? Blue, blue border. Yeah. Jacques was asked about it and kind of refused to answer any, anything about it. Someone was in a Twitter space last night talking about, they were sitting behind uh, John Alexander when Hal started talking about special access programs and that kind of thing. Apparently Alexander started shaking his head and like, shaking his hand by his neck and saying don't say that basically so oh shit yeah you see it's hard to know with these guys because clearly they they've all been friends forever definitely have different views on how all this should be handled probably different information from the different kind of compartments they've worked within there's definitely disagreements on on how much to you know let out and specifically like what to let out about these programs it seems like yeah, I agree with that. But I also think these guys know what they're doing and know what they're saying. You know what I mean? Like, even when Valet mentions it in his book, I, I really feel like at the end of the day, no matter what they're saying about it, he chose to put it in there. Exactly. You know? 
And that's this thing that I pay attention to. Um, that might make me nuts. <laughs> but I really think that like when they do these types of things or they act concerned about something like I think all of it is as controlled as possible. I don't think that these dudes are in the positions they're in because they're careless with that type of stuff. That's just my opinion. I know that sometimes people make mistakes and stuff, but like, I don't think it's that difficult given how reactionary UFO buffs are <laughs> when yeah. they, when they like, I think all of those guys know if they walk into a convention or something, they're being looked at under like a microscope especially with the people that are real conspiratorial that think everyone is like in the deep state or like part of this giant conspiracy and they're all in. I don't, I'm not saying that it's like that. I'm saying that like those people in particular know why they're in the positions they're in. And I think they're one of the, for example, John Alexander gave a presentation and he was talking about how you have to understand conspiracy theories to understand how information works. And uh, when it comes to this topic and how people try to like play games with each other. And he was saying that like uh, it was so important to have thick skin because people will accuse. And I know, dude, John Alexander gets accused of being all sorts of like, I think he's really cool until until someone proves otherwise that he's not. That's the position I take on him is he's really cool, interesting guy that went around the world and tried to study these things firsthand He's tried to study communication with animals. I think that's one of the most interesting things. What was uh, he studied with Elizabeth Kubler Ross, and he was part of that NIDS team that Bigelow assembled. Yeah, let's talk about that. Just explain what NIDS is. It's the National Institute for Discovery Science. For for those who don't know, we we really got to get better at like explain explaining this stuff because. Uh, <laughs> My mom was like, I tried to listen to your podcast, but like I could not follow. I had no idea who you, you were talking about. So, so maybe we should. Uh, Dude, someone made a similar comment to me. It yeah, let's that do that. We were using a lot of acronyms. So like, yeah, we got to keep in mind that people are yeah. like. Uh, New to yeah. this. Um, yeah, yeah. So NIDS, yeah, is the National Institute for Discovery Science. Pretty much, I think, uh, brought together by Bigelow. Was it in the 90s? You know it. Um, yeah, I know what NIDS is, but I also get it mixed up with bass. Yeah, it's a lot of the same people. <laughs> um, I don't know, dude. This is why I hate not having it right in front of me yeah. when I talk about it. Well, it's... we'll start that doing that next episode. <laughs> but yeah, NIDS gotcha. was in the 90s. It was um, kind of a UFO and paranormal research group with serious scientists, a lot of whom were at this uh, Seoul Convention. So there's a lot of people who have been involved in this for a number of years. John Alexander, was he part of NIDS? I think he was. I'm almost positive. Yeah. Um, it said 1995 to 2004, yeah. founded by Robert Bigelow. Yeah, so I think John Alexander and I think at least in an advisory role, him and Hal Pudoff and Jacques Vallée. So what, what do you think it means that a certain level of security clearance can get people killed? Do you think that means they sign? It sounds to me like a kind of blood oath or they sign uh, something where if they, they leak it, they can basically kind of legally be taken care of, quote unquote. That's what it sounds like to me anyway, but that's just speculation, obviously. This is one of the main problems I have is like, I really don't know what's at stake. And usually if uh, something is the death penalty, it has to mean that some absolute line has been crossed for whatever reason. 
but I don't know why that line was drawn or what it's protecting or what it's, you know, I don't, there's so many things in that, that like, I truly don't know. Cause then you get into that like debate about like, like Julian Assange, like, do you believe Julian Assange? Because like, I think the information that WikiLeaks showed was true, but I don't know if it's, you know what I'm saying? Like what, what takes priority? So me personally is like, I feel like Julian Assange should be free because I thought he was doing his best to tell the truth. That's my personal opinion, but yeah. And I, I, I disagree with that personally. Cause I think really, he, yeah. Cause he, he got the information through Russian espionage and that's where we're at here too. I think, I think this has to do with, uh, I mean, you read that Condor man article and, and it seems like this has to do with the Manhattan project and that being, you know, infiltrated by the Russians and them getting our nuclear secrets. And I think they probably thought like, we're going to do whatever it takes not to let that happen with this, you know, UFO technology. If that, if that means having people sign an agreement where they get taken out, if they uh, leak this stuff uh, by any means necessary, basically, Um, we're never letting that happen again. And the only thing I can think of that would actually enforce that would be, you know, signing a kind of a blood oath like, like that. It gets creepy at a certain level, I feel like, with yeah. the secrecy, because they make so much secret. There, There's a whole bunch of questions I have when it comes to secrecy, like Bob Lazar's story. I feel like me personally, I feel like Bob Lazar is telling the truth about his experience, right? But there's also so much that it seems like Bob Lazar was shown as some sort of like sideshow, if that makes sense. A lot of the things that he would talk about seeing were like, because I don't know, I don't want to get into a Bob Lazar tangent. <laughs> I just was trying to make the point that like, it seems like some of that shit, I, even when I say it out loud, it sounds too conspiratorial to think that way. It's also so simple to make people think one thing when it's not. Right. And information is so like, man, this topic, I don't know. I don't know what they have, so I don't know what they're protecting. I think that's part of the game is it's yeah. supposed to be make your you want your enemy to be clueless. They don't I, I, I would assume like you don't want them to know what you've got when it comes to like uh, techno technological capabilities. I, I think it's funny in a way, but it's also <laughs> like if they can like. You know what I'm saying? Make like fresh water for everybody. That's kind of fucked up to keep this concealed. I don't know. Yeah. And then the conspiracy theories are a side effect. They're just willing to deal with, I guess. Yeah. Um, in the name of national security. Very unfortunate that that's the world, that's the world we live in today. But uh, man, it must have taken balls to ask Jock that in front of everyone. Apparently it got people talking. And all right. So full disclosure, we uh, kind of cut off at that last part and are just coming back to the podcast and recording a little bit more on Sunday, November 19th. And uh, yesterday, there were some very interesting things that came out of the Soul Foundation on day two. And one of them was from Carl Nell. Carl Nell was one of the two people who backed up David Grush in the original uh, debrief story on uh, you know his whistleblower claims about... Uh, I'm going to look up the, his quote. So this is what it says in the debrief article. Carl E. Nell a recently retired Army colonel and current aerospace executive who was the Army's liaison to the UAP task force from 2021 to 2022 and worked with Grush there, characterizes Grush as beyond reproach. 
Nell says, his assertion concerning the existence of a terrestrial arms race occurring sub rosa over the past 80 years focused on reverse engineering technologies of unknown origin is fundamentally correct, as is the indisputable realization that at least some of these technologies of unknown origin derive from non-human intelligence. In a 2022 performance evaluation, uh, it described Nell as an officer with the strongest possible moral compass. So he's pretty uh, well regarded, it sounds like, at least, you know, from from his performance review. And uh, he's reported to have been very involved in the Schumer legislation. And that's actually what his presentation was on at the at the Seoul Foundation yesterday. He basically laid out a plan for disclosure, controlled disclosure that is referenced in the legislation. He had a slide up that he was kind of going over, and I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing his full analysis on that because there's some really interesting stuff on there that probably could use a little more context. I think, uh, yeah, we should go over that a little bit. Can I ask you a question real quick yeah. about Nell? So what is his, what's his standing right now? Is he a citizen right now? And, or a civilian, I should say? Like yeah, he's, a, he's uh, retired. Okay. I've heard his name. I don't know how accurate this is, but I've heard from different groups of UFO buffs that this guy, his name has been tossed around as being one of the potential people to lead Arrow, or Arrow, the uh, organization that Kirkpatrick oversaw. Yeah, I think it was Ross Coulthart who mentioned that originally. I personally have a hard time believing that that's going to happen just because of how open he is and how uh, transparent he wants to be and his involvement in the Schumer legislation that's basically ripping this shit out of the the, uh, bowels of the DOD and and the DOE, and he's fully for that and for full disclosure and for the uh, eminent domain aspect of that, where the government would go and basically take back, you know, all the kind of UAP materials that are in the private sector. So I have a hard time seeing a path where they would allow that to happen. Ross might have, you know, been pushing that just to put pressure on the DOD, just as an example for transparency and, and what the DOD should be aiming for. Um, Because Carl Nell would definitely be the best choice at this point. I think it was kind of to put pressure on the DOD. I mean, it would be amazing if that was the case. I just have a hard time, yeah, seeing the DOD doing that. Got you. Yeah, let's talk about this uh, slide and what he says in this slide or what's written in this slide. Because there's a lot of it that I'm like, goodness gracious. Some of the phrases phrases on here are like kind of grim. Yeah. Catastrophic disclosure averted. Yeah, like uh, that's the one that sticks out to me where I'm like, oh, man. So uh, what do you think this chart is? Do you think this is someone's plan or do you think this is like a uh, kind of rough outline of the direction that we're headed in these different areas? So I guess we should start from the top. Okay. Uh, The title of the slide is The Way Forward UAP Campaign Plan Lines of Effort. Apparently the 15th slide of his presentation for the Seoul Foundation Symposium, I think the place to start would be the different phases of, of disclosure. We kind of heard you know, something along these lines from Lou Elizondo, I think a few years ago when he was talking about the five pillars of engagement, getting different areas of American policymakers and different parts of the establishment and the government and in um, you know, the energy sector. And he, he described it as a Manhattan Project type operation. So this seems to go along the same kind of lines as that, except this one lays out 
dates. Let's just go over the several phases of this. So phase zero is titled shaping and under it has the stuff we pretty much already have been acclimated to. So under, under phase zero, shaping is NIDS, which we, we talked about previously, uh, OSAP, ATIP, the DOD video release, the 2017 New York Times article, and the UAP task force. So that has basically what's come to fruition already. And um, it sounds like we are going into phase one. So phase zero is all the stuff we've kind of, we're, we're building off from here on out. So they kind of lay out these dates, you know, how, if they're on track or not, we, I kind of have this in, in my, in my work where we have different projects. And then we say, you know, if they're on target at risk of not being on target and then off target, they kind of lay out the different phases with, with each of these dates and then saying if they're on target or not. So phase one, which is dated for January, 2024 is titled demonstrate existence. And then they lay out like the different kind of uh, scientific, you know, basically like societal mechanisms that that should be used in this. And they're all pretty much throughout each of these phases that are listed. But yeah, public sector and government, philosophical investigation and humanities, scientific research, natural sciences and private sector, like you said. And it's really important. I think we kind of wait to get the context to this stuff because uh, it, it is kind of bare bones. So I'm sure he elaborates on this a bunch, but phase one, demonstrate existence. And the data approach is reactive. Analytic approach is hypothesis generation. And the objective of phase one is government acceptance. So I think phase one is pretty much the Schumer amendment. That's that's what comes to mind for me with the date of January 2024. That That lines up with the passage of this amendment, you know, broad acceptance in the government of of the UAP issue being being real, you know, being something worth investigating. So yeah, this uh, this January 2024 phase is designated as on target. Yeah, again, the Schumer Amendment, and uh, that's on track to pass. I believe that's why it's designated as on target. Yeah, so as of right now, we're not even in phase one. We're still in phase zero. Well, phase one is the Schumer Amendment. So phase two is correlate signatures, which means, I guess, gather data I assume. See, this is why it's kind of frustrating when people fucking leak shit and there's no context to back it up. It's like we have to kind of guess at it. Yeah, hopefully that comes out this week with with his commentary uh, kind of explaining this stuff. And uh, so for phase two is correlate signatures is the name of it. And the data approach is persistent. Analytic approach is forensic. And the objective is academic acceptance. So that is kind of, I think, what the Soul Foundation is trying to uh, bridge the gap between is the Schumer Amendment and this next phase two, which is, yeah, correlate signatures. We go from being reactive in our data approach to being persistent, where we are we have mechanisms set up to where we're collecting data. I guess that it means there's a data pipeline where we're actually pulling in information consistently. The way you're parsing it right now is really helpful. And I hope that people that pull up this chart at home are actually like, following along with their finger when we're reading different parts of this chart because it seemed like phase zero was like collecting data and just like forming some sort of picture as to like what anomalous things are going on because these groups nids osap atip like those that's a pretty even though they're all similar in their like secretive nature from what i understand the things they were trying to study were very different like gathering anecdotal evidence, gathering boots on the ground evidence, going to certain 
uh, compounds, ranches, countries, gathering testimony and data from all these different places. Like, I know that there's people that will throw around NIDS and just think that like everything that was done at NIDS was done at Bass because it's both Bigelow and it's both scientists. But there's probably fundamental differences that makes one NIDS and one Bass. You know what I mean? Different teams, different specific ideas and uh, events that they're exploring. One of the things it says is the New York Times article in 2017. And that was like, if you ask me what that article was, it's like it was the government admitting that this was a real thing and a real phenomenon. Maybe not the way we would have liked with like the most official definitive way to state them. But like that New York Times article revealed that like it's not something that we've just been turning our noses up at. There's clearly secret little groups and committees within the DOD that are looking at this topic and have been for a while. So like that New York Times article kind of made them admit like, hey, these couple videos, this guy that was ahead of this Pentagon program, all these things are a little truer than we'd like you to know. You know, like they they yeah. it kind of seemed like they were like, all right, well, cat's out of the bag, but we're not telling you anything yet. We're just going to say that, yeah, those programs existed. We looked at it. We're still trying to figure out before we say anything definitively. That's the vibe I got from the New York Times. So then phase one ends with the objective government acceptance. And then phase two ends academic. And then phase three ends public acceptance. So it seems like they understand disclosure for a world as crazy and as like interconnected as we are now is not going to be like, remember when Jacques Vallée was talking about the truths of Alethea, I think was yeah. the, the God's name. And like, there's all these different elements to what people consider truth. This, this is very similar to me as that is like, they're tackling it one, what would I say? Sector of our civilization yeah. at a time. And one of them's the government sector one of them is the academic sector. One of them is the public acceptance sector. And then ultimately they have the international. Yeah. So phase two is at risk, it says. I mean, it, it seems like the mechanisms are in place for, for this to get implemented. You know, eventually if the Soul Foundation is successful in what they're trying to do in bridging the gap to academia, that, that should probably be on target for January 2025. So then phase three, the, the title is characterized performance. And I believe that means figure out what these craft are doing through theoretical physics. Yeah, just kind of understand what's going on and, and uh, find out the progress we've made on reverse engineering. Put that out into the academic community. The data approach for that one is proactive. So it goes from reactive to persistent to now we're proactively gathering data. Uh, we have the mechanisms in place to do so, and now we can go out and and maybe set up, you know, sensors and detect these things and actively go and re and gather data out in the field. And the objective of phase three is public acceptance. Yeah, I guess the general public of I assume the United States, but um, I'm sure this will have an effect on the worldwide population. Have the uh, public accept the reality of a non-human intelligence by October 20. 30. That's kind of, I think, where the main, what people would consider disclosure, having it be a public, uh, publicly accepted uh, reality, I think is, is the end goal of phase three. Okay, well, hold on. Let me play devil's advocate, dude. Do Go you not it. see that 
phase three is five years from phase two. And I got to say, I've heard whispers that 2027 is going to be an interesting year. If what comes at 2030 is public acceptance, what's happening in those years between? Like, I wonder how they're going to try to tackle that or if that's just something that they feel like is inevitable. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. uh, I think we brought that date up before. I'm I am not a prophecy guy. If someone's like, hey, hey, you got to listen to Edgar Casey's prophecy. I honestly do not care for prophecies. I think prophecies, if you read Mothman prophecies by John <laughs> Keel, or if you read Messengers of Deception by Jacques Vallée, I think that anytime you'll get a prophecy, you'll want to crumple it up and throw it in the bin because you know <laughs> that the track record on these things and the guys that have the best mind on this is that the people that are having these anomalous experiences, whatever they're encountering has a layer of deception to it. And that's something right. I feel like I'm going off on a tangent right no, now, you're good. but I'm saying the that five year gap is something that's very fascinating to me as someone who reads about this topic a lot. And uh, I'm curious what's scheduled or supposedly or potentially going to happen that's in a good point. and uh, why it's separated by so much where it's like, I don't know. I just thought for the track for all they want to accomplish between 2024 and 2025. And then to follow that up by five years of leading into public acceptance, I find that to be a really fascinating part of this chart. Yeah, I I agree. I'm looking forward to hearing what what Nell has to say about it. But yeah, I find that 2027 date being right smack in the middle of those two interesting as well. And the the funny thing about prophecies is like, I, I know what you mean. It's you know, the 2012 one, like the Mayan prophecy. I oh, people li- were bugging, bro. Oh, yeah. People and were I, bugging. <laughs> and I was living my life. I'm like, all right, I'll stop, uh, you know, raging so hard, like <laughs> partying so hard if the world doesn't end in 2012. And that didn't happen. So, <laughs> well, bro, they thought it would happen in 99 too. Like when yeah. it's turned to 2000, all sorts of radio shows were like, they, people cash in on a good prophecy date. And, uh, you saw it, dude, 2012, they made a movie of like tsunamis and shit. Like it I enjoyed was... that movie, I have to say. <laughs> and I think yeah, there might too. be some, like the whole idea of like the neutrinos in uh, Antarctica starting off on that was, I thought, interesting and kind of got my mind going when I watched, I watched it again, probably a few months, not nah, probably a year ago, but uh, yeah, uh, it was a fun movie and um, yeah, it didn't happen. So <laughs> You know what's actually going to be taking place, though, in these next few years? I bet that's a kind of a wild card in all this is uh, moon missions. Yeah, you're right. We're going to have these Artemis missions coming up very, very soon. I was uh, looking up NASA's timeline of what Artemis would be. This is just the first thing that came up, and it was in a 2020 Lunar Exploration Program Overview. It says Artemis Plan, NASA, and this is on NASA's website. And the first chapter is setting humanity on a sustainable course to the moon. Chapter two is landing humans on the moon in 2024. And chapter three is extending lunar missions and preparing for Mars. Damn. That's a, uh, yeah. I'm curious as to how that ties into uh, this disclosure, if it does at all. That might just be my speculation. But I know that the moon is certainly a part of all this that like, the more I try to read about the moon, the more testimony you hear about there being secrets. And I think that's so weird. Like, why are there secrets about the moon or Antarctica or Mars or any of it? Like those things are all 
very sketch to me. So I'm curious. And it also seemed like that was something Tom DeLong indicated what was motivating disclosure was that he made it seem like private industry was going to start going up and sending things to the moon. And it would be inevitable that uh, facts would be starting to like dribble out that people just couldn't contend with or keep secret anymore. So I'm, I'm real curious about how the moon, the moon missions, Artemis missions factor in to this timeline. Yeah. I'm, I'm very fascinated. I, I, I wonder what conversations are going on behind the scenes to make this plan happen. Phase four is determine the nature of the phenomenon. This is where the public sector government aspect kind of falls off. And then, you know, the rest of the sciences continue on. So the data approach here is targets. Analytic approach is integrated. And objective is five eyes acceptance. So that's the five eyes intelligence uh, alliance is, is having an acceptance between all those countries. I'm guessing might happen before then, but uh, this date is October 2034. So 10 years from now, they want to have all this stuff uh, in the back. And then phase five is engagement. So this is where it gets interesting. Engagement is, I assume, contact in an official capacity. And the data approach is interactive. Analytic approach is scientific discovery. And the objective says strategic end state which I, I'm not sure what that means. Yeah, this, oh, that's <laughs> I'm a dumbass. Uh, strategic end state is, is next to that. And it says um, proper oversight restored and catastrophic disclosure averted. So, oh God. Yeah, the end game here <laughs> is engagement with the phenomenon, some sort of contact, interactive data approach, which I assume means working with them to... I don't know, dude. It's so fucking crazy, like to imagine this and and the fact that this is like going on in the in the heart of Silicon Valley between these the scientists who are at the top of their field and you know these policymakers and all this stuff. And it's all starting with the Schumer Amendment to kick all this off for the next ten years, and then the the end goal is engagement. the The phrase "catastrophic disclosure averted" is is quite interesting. It's a little somber. A little bit. bit. Dude, so this is going to make your heart sink. So Artemis, the first Artemis mission, this is my understanding after quickly Google searching this, the the manned moon mission, like a, a human being officially hasn't hopped around on the moon since over 50 years ago. And I think the year was 72 or 73. Officially. The official Officially. officially. Can't stress that enough. The official story. Um, which is to protect officials, wink, wink. So, okay, <laughs> Art, Artemis 2 is supposed to take place November 2024. And phase two on this chart starts January 1st, 2025. That's nice. something to chew on for people is like, what the fuck? Did they, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like that's that's one of the most interesting coincidences when it comes to that chart yeah. is that. And then the the whispers about some date between 2025 and 2030, that if you ask any UFO buff, they'll tell you a different idea of what they think is going to happen in those years. But one thing is for sure is like the wheels are turning. It's not like in years before where they were denying the existence of the phenomenon altogether or only claiming that these had prosaic explanations. 
they've cornered it enough to make it to where it's like clear that the public isn't going to accept all prosaic explanations anymore. The crossovers are too strong now. And they, the academics are now starting to admit that there appears to be a part of this part of our world that we're just having an extreme amount of difficulty interpreting. The better our technology gets, the more prepared our military is. I feel like that all plays into whether or not the public can get a glimpse of what actually has been occurring these past 70, 80 years and why we have so much secrecy. It seems like a uh, this chart, as, as crazy as that last line, catastrophic <laughs> disclosure averted. Like, I know that's a very serious line, but like, think about the serious, if, if this is more serious than the Manhattan Project, I would assume that it had some like high stakes. I don't understand really the nature yet of this cover up and why it's so heavily protected. But that line there gives you a good indication of like, they are not playing games with how secret this is. I don't think they have any issue crossing people's wires up when yeah. they're trying to figure figure it all out. Because like the way this is compartmentalized is like, I don't think that there's a lot of people in any of these sectors that have the big picture yet. If I'm taking away like a big theme from that whole conference, it's that we got so many different crossovers of scientists and different parts of academia examining this idea. And uh, I hope that there's more of these and that it's not made into some sort of sideshow with whatever (laughs) fucking, like I didn't need to hear about any mummies getting rolled out. (laughs) (laughs) That was was a good, that was a good first sign. That's the Uh, best, the best sign of any (laughs) successful conference. No mummies. Tells me that they actually have some bearing as to like uh, <laughs> what, what gets shown to people and what they're not. Yeah, is that <laughs> there's no way I, that blindsided everybody when Mexico did that or is now doing this. Yeah, and, I saw uh, some uh, Japanese video, I guess, where it was shared by one of those Nazca mummies uh, accounts, where like <laughs> this dude like un- unrolled like this little mummy out of a fucking like burrito tinfoil thing. Like it looked like a burrito. <laughs> like it was literally like in tinfoil and he unwraps it on TV. And it's just like, they're holding these things like they're fucking like action figures. And it's, it's like, that's how you treat a non-human specimen. That's going to change everything about what we know about the universe. Like get, like, get the fuck out of here. Um, but yeah, I think the most important uh, kind of takeaway from this is that there, there is a lot that's unknown about this. And one of the other interesting things I find about the slide in, in phase four and phase five, which are determine the nature and engagement, it looks like the, the public sector government aspect of this is ki- kind of falls off. It's, it's not left to the government anymore. I guess the goal is by you know October 2030 is to get everything we can out of the government, all the data, all the knowledge, materials, all that stuff to the point where we won't need to be digging into into the stuff anymore, you know, trying to get transparency. I guess this is I guess this is like best case scenario is is their aim is to get transparency from the government by yeah, October 2030. And from then on, it's it's basically left up to the philosophical investigation and the humanities and scientific research and the private sector. So I find that that aspect interesting as well. I wish that we had more input about this. This is a lot of information on this chart. I I would tell everybody that's looking at this to like 
take a deep breath and like really understand that like we still don't have the full understanding of what all these things mean or why they're written. I think that you've given a pretty good idea of like what this is saying and what its implications are. Yeah. I'm looking at all these dates and I'm like, well, what the hell's going on in these dates? And I'm trying to like uh, speculate, but I think, I think the important part about this is, is the idea that stuff is on target at risk or off target. So this is, seems pretty fluid. You know, I feel like this is best case scenario. This is their plan. They're laying out at the beginning, but things can, obviously there's a lot to this and there's a lot of moving parts. There's international (laughs) mummy conferences and shit like that, that, you know, stuff that might, might affect this, um, either negatively or positively and, and either hold it back or push it forward, depending on what it is. They can't really account for everything. I'm excited to see, you know, what considerations they put, they put into this and, and what they've kind of gamed out in terms of what could affect this timeline. I want to ask a difficult question because this is something that I know that you talk to your fair share of UFO buffs, as do I, and uh, they'll reach out. They're fans of the show. Some of them aren't even interested in this topic. Those are the my favorite types of messages to get are the people that say like, hey, we listen to this at work now and like yeah. say that they shared it with other people like that shit. So awesome. That's an awesome feeling. My my question for you is what do you say to the people? And I know that you've come across some of these people that say, well, that Carl Nell guy's a liar. And I think David Grush is a liar. And I think that all these guys are playing this giant trick on us. And they're, it's all a psyop because they never give us a straight answer about anything since JFK, since the Gulf of Tonkin, all these things, they haven't given us a straight answer. Why should I believe them now? What is your response to people that have that sentiment? Uh, that's a good question, man. And it's hard to you know determine some people's, uh, especially some of the most vocal skeptics. It's hard to determine you know whether or not they're coming from a place of good faith. Like I personally, I definitely understand the frustration. Uh, it's been eighty years of obfuscation. I just think that if you if you can't see the difference in approach from this compared to everything that's happened before this. I don't really know what what to tell people because at this point it's either they're not really paying attention or they've fallen so far into their I don't know apathy I guess or uh, and I, I understand that people like want to protect themselves from being hurt again. That's a very natural human uh, thing to do. Well, it's almost part of the phenomenon itself is the people that are so against the people who believe in the phenomenon. <laughs> like if you look yeah. at the history of this, there's always a John Keel talks about this in Disneyland of the gods, the Hotch setter syndrome. I, if you want, I can explain yes, or read this little that. blurb from uh, Disneyland of the gods. Cause Keel had a really interesting idea of like how this whole game plays out. And uh, here, I hope this can give some clarity. The Hotch setter syndrome. When the first flying saucer craze erupted in June 1947, scores of enthusiastic advocates emerged. Some of them had been collecting reports of odd aerial things for years, and they had ready-made conclusions. The leader of the pack was Raymond Palmer, editor of Amazing Stories and founder of Fate magazine. There was a Dr. Mead Lane and his spiritualists who had been talking to the saucer people for years. Tiffany Thayer and his hardy band of four teens saw great governmental conspiracies behind the phenomena. However, the skeptics far outnumbered the believers in those days. 
Most newspapers treated the incoming UFO reports with levity. Comedians, columnists, and radio commentators created a whole new category of saucer humor. Anyone with any scientific credentials sneered and guffawed. Flying saucers were impossible, they snorted in unison. Such things could not be. It was all just a silly fad. But the damnable things did not go away, since they were buzzing around our military and atomic installations and landing on highways and in farm fields with impunity. The United States Air Force was terribly embarrassed. If UFOs were real, they were making fools of our military, proving that our expensive Air Force was incapable of defending the skies over the United States. The government's solution to this dilemma was simply to deny the existence of the objects. To this end, they set up phony public relations office known as Project Blue Book, and they enlisted the aid of prominent Harvard astronomer Donald Menzel. Menzel had been involved in various classified government projects and wrote science fiction as a hobby. It is possible that the government paid him to become an anti-UFO spokesman, but perhaps he was just another victim of the Hochstetter syndrome and became anti-UFO because some deep psychological need. The same kind of need that drove James Randi to hound Yuri Geller. Dr. Menzel became ufology's earliest critic. He wrote reasonably well, and his byline appeared in many popular magazines. He had a simple scientific explanation for all UFO sighting. They were caused by air inversions. This is a meteorological condition created when pockets of cold air get trapped in warm air. The difference in density causes lights from the ground to reflect or refract. Dr. Menzel wrote countless magazine articles and several books on this theme, though he didn't investigate any UFO sightings. If he investigated any sightings, he might have discovered that the air inversion theory wasn't workable. That, of course, would jeopardize his entire belief system. Refracted light from air inversions explained the funny glows in the sky, but how did Menzel explain all the car chases, abductions, landings, and weird manifestations? His scientific answer was that all the witnesses were liars, fools, or drunks. That took care of that. In 1966, Menzel appeared on a TV show with author John Fuller. Fuller had just spent weeks in Exeter, New Hampshire, living amongst people who were literally under siege from a massive UFO wave taking place at that time. Menzel quickly denounced all the key witnesses as drunks, even though he hadn't been near Exeter. Fuller put up a brisk, logical, well-documented defense, and millions watched as Dr. Menzel fell apart on national TV. Menzel seemed to fade away after the show and died not long afterward. The most hated man in the history of ufology was Dr. J. Allen Hynek, minion of the Air Force. Every time he made a public statement, the entire ufological community went into a state of apoplexy. In a silly and extremely costly Air Force boondoggle, Project Grudge, published in 1949, he contributed a list of over 200 reported UFO sightings that he claimed were merely stars, assuming that people were stupid enough to report stars to the U.S. Air Force. He could be had for a small amount of money. The Air Force needed all the help it could get to keep an irate UFO-watching public off its back. They were looking for someone with academic credentials who would lend authority to their wild anti-UFO statements, somebody who would just take the money and run. Well, and the major difference here, and you kind of answered, Keel kind of answered the question that you asked me, was um, the, the difference is there were maybe one or two scientists that like the Air Force could buy out that, that were able to be influenced that had high credibility. This is different because this is a group of outside academics that, that seems to be growing, you know, exponentially. 
you know, they're going to run out of fucking money <laughs> to, to pay people off to try to discredit this shit. So that, that's kind of the main difference here is that it's an external mechanism filled with very credible people who are doing very serious outreach, you know, making the case based on evidence like Gary Nolan is going to release a paper on materials he talked about at this um, symposium, I guess, imminently. And I think that will have have an effect and, you know, spark interest in, you know, other people to come and say, hey, this looks fucking weird. Like, why would someone construct this kind of crazy ass expensive um, atomically layered material? And we don't even know what the use case is for it. Getting attention that way, I think, is very important. I think one of the biggest issues so far has been funding that kind of research. So uh, the Soul Foundation, you know, attracting donors through putting out papers like that and getting the actual funding to conduct these very expensive experiments on both like these materials and then, you know, putting out sensors like the Galileo project is, I think is a really big difference between, you know, putting one guy out there who's able to be bought off, you know? So uh, I think, uh, yeah, the cat's out of the bag in regards to academia. Uh, from what I hear from the people who were at the symposium, there was an energy that most of them said they hadn't felt before of kind of camaraderie and um, uh, curiosity that emanated throughout this conference. I think people felt like they weren't alone anymore in their interest in this and that there were people they could reach out to who who would understand what they were saying when they were asking questions about the science. There was, uh, you know, the humanities were represented here. Peter Scafish, who is an anthropologist, is one of the co-founders of this organization. So, you know, this is a very multidisciplinary approach to studying this. And um, there's going to be a huge paradigm shift in general in the sciences when it comes to interactions and breaking down these walls of compartmentalization between the different disciplines. I think that's a huge benefit in itself. Yeah, we're going to need everyone on board to figure out what the fuck this is. And uh, I think this the Soul Foundation and, and the kind of energy I've heard being reported from there is a good indication of that. Well, you're already seeing that bridge with people like Pasolka and Jacques Vallée, an astrophysicist and computer scientist. And Pasolka is a, a philosopher, if I'm correct. And both of them are working with a guy at Harvard named Brent Landau, who is uh, translating these texts that were written in a language called Syriac that were at the Vatican's archive. I don't know. I, f I feel like that's that is uh, one that I know right off the cuff is an interesting collaboration. But like that shows that people all over the place, regardless of where you fall uh, professionally, these people are trying to like compare notes with each other and understand like how these stories came to be in a bunch of different technical ways, whether it's the philosophical reason or examining the data as Valet likes to do. That's something that I, I really like about his uh, process was that he he was interested in the data. I think it was Pasolka who said that if you wanted to find a good witness, find someone who wasn't, you know what I'm saying? Like this is like hype of the town that is like trying to become popular off of this. He's like, talk to everybody. Because you're going to find out that a lot of people have had an experience that they can't explain. A lot of the time when the people start talking about them, other parties will get to them. And then you start seeing a change in what the story was in the first place. There's people that will make a YouTube video about them seeing a UFO every day. Yeah. And, and to a certain degree, I'm like, I'm a person who's never experienced anything. I'm, every one of those videos that gets uploaded... I'm not going to lie. I don't think that it helps 
whatever cause they're trying to you know what I'm like I, I feel like it's counterproductive to have just like a handful of people saying that they're the ones experiencing this phenomenon. Well, that doesn't seem to be what the data suggests at all. It seems to be like a large portion of internationally, a large portion of people have had this these types of anomalous experiences, whether it's like with a ball of light or an entity or whatever people for years and years have failed at classifying. Removing the stigma is probably step one. And then admittance that a phenomena exists, I would say, is step two. Even when I'm trying to rationalize this process in my head of how someone would like accept this into their worldview, I still get some pause. It, people are so unique, you know, like have all sorts of weird rules that they follow or whether they accept something or don't accept them. I think a large reason that that Nell chart was the way it was is because I think that they understand a lot about how human beings are stubborn in some areas and then willing to accept completely ridiculous aspects of reality in other areas of their life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I think the, the toughest part about this is going to be meeting people where they are in their current frame of reference, trying to you know, bring them into a, a new reality that's shared by by everyone based on data, because people people like to ignore data if it's inconvenient or uncomfortable. And that that kind of makes me wonder what, you know, these hardcore skeptics see when they look at this slide. Obviously, they've they've already fucking just ridiculed it and said, oh, look, the next 10 years is another grift. You know, it's so lazy. It's so fucking lazy. And um, I, I wonder, you know, at what point is there going to be this little voice in the back of their head just like, you might be wrong, you know? <laughs> like, I, I wonder if, if this slide actually did that. And it seems like the more uncomfortable the potential uh, ramifications are of disclosure, uh, the more vocal they get. Again, it's hard to tell what their motives are. Um, some of them definitely seem like, uh, like they, you know, they're on... Twitter all day, every day, fucking talking about something that they hate. It's hard to think that there's not ulterior motives when it comes right. to that kind of uh, that kind of attack. Yeah, I just wonder, and it, it'll probably just get worse before it gets better when it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah, I would agree with that. A lot of folks that I see that uh, consider themselves skeptics or that are labeled skeptics or debunkers, if you look at their social medias, it's, it's, it consumes their entire life. They post more than I do. They it's post crazy. a hundred percent. And they're very interested in changing your mind about particular people. Yes. It's um, always they, they, about people. If you can yeah. discredit the person, you can discredit the subject. Yes. And it's, it's so, way, and that's been the fucking playbook forever. That's yeah. the whole thing. That's the reason why I took a closer look at the claims Tom DeLong was making. Cause if folks remember when he went on Joe Rogan, uh, I think it was 2016 or 2017. He was making a lot of claims as far as like what's to come, who's going to come forward, who his advisors are. And I'm not going to lie. I was laughing at him. I think I've said that on a previous podcast. I was laughing during that whole podcast. I remember watching it live in my car and being like, uh, this guy's been fed some baloney. I, I, I genuinely was in a position where I, I felt very distrustful about that whole everything bob lazar grays the any of those types of ideas that they touched on really didn't feel like 
had any evidence to be worth discussing. And uh, Joe Rogan was like laughing at him during the interview. He was like, uh, I think this might be bullshit. Like a lot of the time he was like, uh, who told you that? Tom would answer. He'd be like, oh, well, I, I, I can't tell you yet. I can't tell you. And there'd be a lot of I can't tell yous. And those are the most frustrating things ever. Fast forward a couple months and I see the caliber of the individuals that were his advisors and the books that have been written about this phenomenon by guys like Valet and Keel. And I'm like, oh, whoa, way more research about this has been going on than I ever even anticipated. In the years past, the skeptics have had every opportunity to prove Tom DeLong wrong. And I still see him with a thriving company, a thriving band, and writing books that 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 was one thing is like they released that first Secret Machines book. And Jacques Vallée went and wrote the Ford to the first Secret Machines with Lavenda and with Lavenda and Tom DeLong. Just that tidbit alone made me go like, okay, well, Jacques Vallée's given his stamp of approval to, to the stars. So when they're saying that it's like all oh, psyop. That type of shit is like, really? Given all that history, he writes a forward to this book and people have the audacity to call him this like lying shill. The people's bar for who's a shill and who's a liar is very flimsy in my experience. I think it's a huge problem in establishing like a, a path forward. So it's not yeah. crazy to me that there's a multi, multi-year plan in place to make sure that People don't just like tear themselves apart trying to comprehend this different frame of reference for how to explain some of these phenomena. Just one of the things from the Joe Rogan interview with Tom that might kind of sum up why this is so complicated and how this can be exploited for nefarious purposes. You know, if all the data is not there first, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But um, I think this might be a big part of it. I think at some point in history, Someone came here and tampered with existing creatures and made us and upgraded us at very specific intervals. How do you tell that to everyone? <laughs> I feel like you just give it a try on Rogan and see how yeah, it goes I guess, uh, <laughs> and then go from there. <laughs> and everyone thinks you're nuts. Yeah. Um, but yeah, man, I think that's good. It's really exciting. And I'm really looking forward to the context that that'll be further provided by especially Nell. And uh, just seeing all the other speakers, because there's some really smart people. Yeah, I'm looking forward to Valet. Yeah, this uh, episode was sponsored by Blue Borders Mexican Grill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got anything you want to plug? Again, just want to thank everybody who signed up to the Patreon and the Discord. I think that's been some of the coolest stuff I've seen in a very long time, is just having people ask genuine, honest questions and like... I, I got to admit some of them I'm not even able to answer, but like mm -hmm. it definitely uh, kind of keeps me focused as to where people are. Yeah. I don't have anything to plug, um, but yeah, I'll be probably be spending more time in the discord now. I don't know. Twitter's a nightmare recently. Um, there's some crazy shit going on there. So I think uh, my time might be spent better uh, elsewhere. Yeah. Thanks uh, so much for listening. We'll probably hit on some of these notes again next week. Should be very interesting to see where this all leads but uh yeah that's all i got and uh we'll see you next week thanks guys